0: Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3.
1: Thanks for joining us on Prime Time. I'm Bharati Jagdish, tracking several global headlines for you today. Reactions to the UK's mini-budget referenda in Ukraine and former Prime Minister, Japanese Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe's state funeral, which is taking place tomorrow. To talk to us about all of these developments, Rob Hugh-Jones joins us. He's editor at the BBC. Hi, Rob. Thanks for joining us today.
0: No problem, and good evening.
1: Good evening indeed. Good morning to you, of course. Now, let's first talk about reactions to the UK's mini-budget. We're seeing the British pound tumble to a record low today as traders are scampering for the exits, speculating that the new government's economic plan will stretch its finances to the limit. It plummeted last Friday when the Chancellor announced the biggest raft of tax cuts. I'm pretty sure that this is not going down well at all. It's pretty obvious.
0: It is pretty obvious. And uh, yeah, so what we've seen is the biggest tax cuts in this country in 50 years, five zero years, plus a load of uh, Thatcherite, you would might call it deregulation and so on. So, you know, people have been sort of hit by what was described as this mini budget. And uh, it did, I think it's fair to say, exceed expectations of what tax cuts and um, And borrowing would come down the line. And, of course, it has spooked markets to some degree. As you say, the pound has fallen very, very low. It's recovered somewhat, but it got pretty low, didn't it, at one point. Um, In terms of reaction, well the opposition Labour Party have their conference at the moment, which happens once a year. And that usually puts them on the front page of the newspapers. And of course, they're loving this uh, and mm. saying uh, the, the, the shadow chancellor, the shadow finance minister, Rachel Reeves, this morning saying this is a reckless gamble with the British economy. And some economists, of course, would agree with her and some wouldn't. Some would go with the government and say, actually, you do need to incentivize growth at a time uh, when the global economy is suffering to some extent and, and our economy is uh, and this is the right way forward. So actually on, in terms of economic pages you see uh, that uh, opinion is fairly well divided but uh, certainly if you listen to the opposition Labour Party, I mean the, the leader Keir Starmer has just been saying that uh, if you earn a million pounds in this country then you stand to gain 55,000 pounds a year. In other words this is, is tax-cutting to favour the rich and to favour the wealthy. And his party is not about favouring the rich or the wealthy, quite the opposite. And so really the opposition are are cashing in on this. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's a turbulent time, no question.
1: But Rob, objectively speaking, will the middle and lower income people who are currently in the thick of the cost of living crisis benefit at all?
0: Well, it's not clear. I mean, it, the basic rate of income tax will drop from 20p to 19p. Actually, Labour, the, the opposition, would do the same thing. So, you know, that's, that's one, one way in which people will benefit. The, the national insurance contribution, which is how we pay for our health service and social care, that was going to be hiked, uh, but that has now been reversed as well. So in some ways, people will have more money in their pockets, or at least you might think so. The problem is inflation is about 9.9, nearly 10%. So anything you gain on the tax cuts, you lose on the cost of living, essentially. Um, So, you know, people, I don't think, necessarily view this as a means of becoming richer, even though that's the way the government is certainly presenting it. You know, let's get more money into people's pockets and let's get them spending. And by doing so, let's increase growth.
1: Mm. I guess this will be definitely very closely watched in the coming days. Something else that was closely watched over the weekend and now, too, is elections in Italy. They went to the polls in an election that has been watched in Europe With great scrutiny, far-right leader Giorgia Maloney has claimed victory. She's on course to become the country's next first, I should say, female prime minister. Widely expected to form Italy's most right-wing government since World War II. And this is expected to alarm much of Europe, as Italy is the EU's third biggest economy. Talk to us about why.
0: Yes, well, it is the third biggest economy. It's a country of 61 million people. That means it's comparable to, say, the UK population, for example. So Italy you know, is a pretty big player in Europe and is still, of course, part of the European Union, unlike us here in Britain. But, yeah, Georgia Maloney is 45 years old. She was actually the youngest ever minister in Italy back in her 30s when she served in a Berlusconi government. But here she is leading in the polls as the counting continues and is definitely set to be Italy's first female prime minister, at the head of a coalition that is definitely regarded as right-wing or far-right. And that does bother people in Brussels and the EU because they see far-right parties in France doing very well, Uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, the Vox Party in Spain, for example. They see far-right governments in Hungary uh, and in Poland to some extent. So, you know, the one thing the European Union wants at the moment is unity, particularly in the face of Russian um, invasion of Ukraine. And so the last thing it wants is a government that is sort of bucking the trend or is anti-EU in any way. Now, I should say that Georgia Maloney says that she's pro-EU and pro-NATO, and that she is in favor of sanctions against uh, Russia over its activities in Ukraine. But that, I should say, sets her apart from her coalition partners. Uh, so Salvini is, uh, it says, it questions uh, these sanctions against Russia, and Berlusconi himself, well, last week he actually justified Putin's invasion of Ukraine, saying Mr. Putin was pushed into it. So you can see that Salvini and Berlusconi are sort of pro-Putin, even if Maloney is going to try and steer a more more middle ground course to appease perhaps the the bureaucrats in Brussels. But in terms of Maloney's other uh, policy initiatives, I mean, she wants a naval blockade of Libya to stop uh, mass immigration into Italy. She's, She's spoken out vociferously against Muslim immigration into Italy and southern Europe. Uh, She's also spoken out against uh, LGBT rights, for example. There's no question that that this is a a far-right government coming into power in Italy, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, what it actually does beyond the rhetoric and how it's received. Mm. Well,
1: she has said, speaking of rhetoric, uh, that she would govern for everyone. Her brothers of Italy party would govern for everyone. Do people even believe this?
0: Well, it's unclear, you see. She, She... uh, I mean, she once belonged to a neo-fascist group, no question, when she was uh, uh, much younger. And uh, she, she still, for example, uses the slogans that were, uh, that were used back in the 1940s, you know, to, her party does. So some people do suspect that, uh, that she has these sort of tendencies or, uh, or leanings. Uh, but of course, she, to be the leader of the country and to be a sort of thriving member of the European Union and so on, has to be saying things that are going to go down well in Brussels and are going to go down well with the, with the population at large. And so she's using uh, more moderate language than she might otherwise have done and that she's used in the past. But I really do think we have to wait and see. You know, at what point does the rhetoric stop and action Uh, begin and we should be judging her on her actions
1: yeah and whether the moderation and the rhetoric is also reflected in her eventual actions now since we are talking elections there are elections of sorts going on in ukraine to be more precise referenda in which people under russian occupation are being asked to say whether they want to join russia or stay ukrainian so tell us more about this process and what we can expect in the coming week
0: Yes, well, there's a lot going on with Ukraine at the moment. So there's these four referenda that you refer to, two in the south, two in the east of Ukraine. These are areas that are under mostly Russian occupation, not fully. Uh, And they're also at war. You know, these are the front line, essentially. So what's being asked of Ukrainians is come out and vote. Um, There are polling stations opening tomorrow. There have been People going door to door in the last couple of days uh, trying to get people to vote. But, you know, people are being asked to come out and vote at a time when the area they're living in is, is, uh, is in a war situation on the front line. So there's consternation about that. But really what's going on is Russia is trying to annex about 15, 5 percent of sovereign Ukrainian territory. That is how it's been presented in the West. And the West, of course, America, EU in particular, saying these are sham referenda, just as the referendum in Crimea was in 2014 when the Russians went in there. The Russians said 96% of the people in Crimea voted to join Russia, but uh, a leaked report from a major human rights organization right after that said actually about 30%, about a third voted, and only about a half said they wanted to join uh, the Russian Federation. So the, you know there are there are big question marks about these referenda and whether they have any kind of integrity. Uh, the Kremlin says they do, and the West says they don't, and so does Ukraine, of course.
1: Now, Rob, you were right when you said there's a lot going on on that front. I mean of course we have been talking on and off about Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons also people trying to leave the country to avoid being conscripted young men are now being stopped from leaving tell us more about what's happening on the ground and how this might unfold
0: Yes well we've actually got reports that some young men's uh, are actually turning up at uh, military recruitment centers and training centers you know to begin Uh, the process of actually becoming members of the army. So some are in favor of this partial mobilization, or at least have gone along with it, and some have not. And that's why you've seen these five-mile queues into Georgia, for example. You've seen queues into uh, attempts to cross into Lithuania, into Finland, and elsewhere. And you can understand that, you know, a lot of young Russians, some of whom have done military service. Military service is obligatory for Uh, for many young Russians, although there are great numbers of exceptions, particularly among students and so on. Um, But, you know, there is this effort by many to try and get out of this. uh, Whether they believe in the war or not, they don't want to be conscripted and and sent into Ukraine to try and defend the Russian line there, which which amounts to about 620 miles. You can understand why the Russians feel that they need, what, 300,000, as many as 300,000 new recruits in this partial mobilization so that's what we're seeing at the moment
1: let's move closer to home in relation to singapore of course we're talking about japan where the state funeral of former prime minister shinzo abe will be held this week and clearly there's a controversy swirling around this event tell us more Rob, from your standpoint what are you observing
0: Yes, well, as your listeners will know, when Shinzo Abe was gunned down at a campaign rally, campaign speech in July, you know, there was a general sense of shock and grief, um, particularly in a country like Japan, where, you know, gun violence, political violence is not uh, well known at all. Um, So, you know, we had all of that when when it first happened. Now you get headlines in Japan. I'll read you one. It says, how could Abe's funeral cost more than the Queen's? Um, And this Mm. uh, newspaper in Japan has cited uh, a report in Britain's Daily Mirror tabloid saying that the Queen's funeral cost around about eight million pounds, but that Abe's funeral, state funeral as well, will cost a good deal more than that. And the, the question that newspaper is raising is is this a sensible way to spend money at a time of a cost-of-living crisis and inflationary pressures pushing the cost of everything upwards? Mm. Um, so there is some controversy about that. But I think more broadly, there is controversy about Abe himself, you know, the legacy of the former prime minister, Japan's longest-serving prime minister. abe of course, some people did not agree with that. Some people did, some people didn't. And his uh, reinterpretation of Article 9 and Japan's pacifist constitution, of course, that drew critics as well. Some people uh, believed in what he was doing, thought Japan should be more nationalist and uh, flex its muscles more on the international stage, but others did not. And that's why he was a divisive figure, and I think really when we're talking about his state funeral this week, that is why there, is, uh, th- there are voices on either side uh, praising him and, uh, and casting some doubt on his legacy.
1: All right. Thank you very much for that, Rob. Rob Hugh-Jones, editor at the BBC in London. Thanks for joining us and taking us through some of the global headlines that we all should be watching this week.